0: One was made famous by Three Dog Night. Roy, you nailed it, that's awesome. Um, The song is known for its opening line. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Harry Nielsen wrote that song after calling someone and getting a busy signal. He stayed on the line during the beep, beep, beep that you notice at the first of the song, actually. And he wrote the song while he was waiting. My family has been scared to death that I was going to sing that song today. I figured if Jeff could do it, I could try it. Um, but I might have tried it. But two months ago, I went back to my home church in Pensacola and I preached. And as, as I was there, I had all these memories flooding back over me. And I remember children's choir. And I remember the teacher saying, okay, next week we're going to sing a duet in church. Um, How about Donnie and Joey, you practice. So Donnie and Joey, we sang it. And when it was over, I remember right where I was standing. The teacher said, okay, let's try Donnie and Rhett. And I got the message, and a huge mark was left on my life. Okay, well, while I'm having therapy here, um, I don't generally, when I preach or teach, use poetry. Now, this one is because of college freshman English. The professor of a class of about 100 said, Mr. Creech, would you please read this poem? And I said, "Um, Dr. Gordon, I'm really not very good at reading poetry. And he said, Mr. Creech, just read the poem. And so I read it, and he said, Mr. Creech, next time I'll take your advice. (laughs) Um, Okay, therapy's over, um, maybe. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at comparisons and at community. Comparisons often take place... Um, in our own minds, um, in our own thinking alone. But community, by the very nature of the Word, is lived out in company, in assembly of others. Today I'm going to ask a lot of questions of each of us, so let me start. Do you try to go it alone? Do you live life isolated? Do you accept advice from other people? What lies are we believing when we make the decision not to be involved in the lives of others or to allow others to be involved in our lives? The biggest, perhaps, lie that we tell ourselves is that I don't need others. I can figure this out all by myself. Well, for most of us, that doesn't work out real well. How much do you compare yourself with others? As you know, Jeff has been leading us through this series on Ecclesiastes, and there have been vivid pictures painted of our lives from this book as it talks about the vanity under the sun as we live in a fallen, broken world. And yet, Jeff has been faithful to remind us that God is going to make beautiful all the brokenness in its time. Today, we're going to see three snippets of our broken lives that we live in this world. We're going to talk about our work and our labor, our accepting counsel from others, and our living in community. But let us hear God's Word as it's found in Ecclesiastes 4. This is the very Word of God, beginning with verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after win. Let us pray together. Our Father, we come together today preoccupied um, perhaps with many things, whether it's other events of this day, or whether it's the events of the week which are to come. Father, I ask that You would send Your Spirit, and that You would come in great power and speak to us today. We each need that, and I pray that we would have ears that might hear. In the precious name of Jesus, Amen. Let's first talk about our work and our labor, beginning with verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. The one being described here is the one who has worked so hard and so much that he has no friends or family. Work has consumed this person. There has been much envy and comparison to others. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. The more he has, the more he wants. The beauty and lifestyle of others has not only been noticed by him, but has been envied and coveted. This person lives only to toil and consume more. The more he has, the more he must have. He's become a slave to his work. He will not rest. He drives those who work for Him. Let me ask this. um, Do you have a boss? Are you the boss? What is your attitude to your work and your boss and your employees? Scripture tells us to do our work as unto the Lord. Scripture tells us to do all that we do for His glory. What excuses do you make for not doing that? Would Christ be pleased with your balance of work ethic and gracious attitude? And then, if you are the boss, how do you treat other people? Are you an encourager or a tyrant? Are you engaged or absent? This person in Ecclesiastes has more than enough in regards to shelter and to savings and to satisfying the stomach, but the eyes are not satisfied. The story is told of John Wesley and his house burning down. And a friend came running in a state of panic and said to him, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned down. And Wesley is said to have pondered it for a minute. And then he said, no, the Lord's house has burned down. And that's one less responsibility for me. We hear that and we say, well, gosh, Wesley needs to get a little bit real. But Wesley did not respond simply out of a denial of the reality before him. The reality was that Wesley knew the truth of God being the owner of it all. In my life, over the years, I've met a couple handfuls of people... I've heard say things like, it is the Lord's, it all belongs to Him. And the way they live their life with an open hand to bless others has really backed up what they are saying. And I can tell you that I have a long way to go in that area myself. I'm talking here about people who certainly enjoy what God has given to them, but they have such open hands ...in blessing others in need. Their eyes indeed seem to be satisfied. And they live with an amazing generosity. Now, we're not going to know most people well enough... ...to make the evaluation of whether their eyes are satisfied or not. And we certainly need to be very careful in ascribing that condition to another... But we should certainly be willing to look into our own lives and hearts and ask ourselves whether our eyes are satisfied, whether we live with a contentment, or whether we are striving to keep up with someone else. Let me go back to the issue of comparison for just a second. Do you compare? Are your eyes satisfied? Do you compare yourself to others in regards to possessions or home or car or clothes or family? And if you say no, that you do not compare, um, you are the only person I know who is beyond that. So much of our world, the advertising, is geared toward our comparing ourselves to someone or something. Another question. To whom do you compare yourself? My guess is that we most often compare ourselves to those who have more in a given area. How often do we compare ourselves to someone who has less? That would probably be a much better exercise for it would lead much more likely to our experiencing gratitude rather than envy. A couple years ago, I came across something called the Global Rich List. Now, we know that yearly these lists come out and we see them in the grocery stores at the checkout counters of the world's richest people. And we see names like Buffett and Gates and Slim and others. But the Global Rich List is something that's very different because it allows you to actually measure where you are in relationship to everybody else in the world. For instance, if you were to make $33,000 last year, you would be in the top 1% of the world's wage earners. $33,000. What you earn in a year would take the average worker in Ghana about 206 years to make. And that's at making 33000 a year. You would be making $17 plus an hour, while the average worker in Ghana makes about 8 cents an hour. Your monthly income would pay the monthly income of 124 doctors in Kazakhstan. Perhaps you do not want to practice medicine in Kazakhstan. (laughs) Now, to put it in a little bit deeper perspective as we're talking about it, if you were to make $5,000 in a year, you would be in the top 25% of the world's wage earners. When will we find contentment in who we are and in what we have? This passage in Ecclesiastes 4 describes the man who works nonstop in order to stay ahead of everyone else. It is the one who has joined the rat race and is running harder and longer than anyone to his own detriment and certainly to the detriment of those whom he says he loves the most. Everyone here knows someone who fits the description that I've painted this morning. And some of us know that person all too well, for we see ourselves. At the heart of the issue of comparing is the lack of... Of contentment, We should be working hard, God calls us to, but we must learn contentment with what we have. Philip Ryken speaks of how we should find satisfaction in the goodness of God. Just like the little girl whom he says misquoted Psalms 23, but she misquoted it in a very interesting way. Rather than saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, she said... The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. And Rikin concludes that most of us want so many other things in life that it's hard for us to say that. But whether Jesus is all we want or not, the truth is, He is all we need. In our work and in our labor, we are called to be content. Now, if we go to the end of chapter 4, we see another comparison taking place. And this is the old and presumably wise king who will not accept counsel, contrasted to the young and the poor, but the wise one who is willing to take advice. So we see here um, in verse 13, as we talk about our accepting counsel from others, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. Look at the contrasts made here. It's young versus old, poor versus rich, wise versus foolish. But the most important contrast here is the attitude toward advice. We generally think of age and wisdom going together, but not in this instance. The king, the elderly one, no longer knew how to take advice. We generally think of youth and not listening, going together, but not in this instance. The youth showed more wisdom and teachability than the elderly. In these verses, we can easily think of Moses in the Old Testament. We're not sure who the writer is referring to as he talks about the old king and the young one rising up. But we think of Moses in the Old Testament. He was born poor and he rose to the height of the kingdom while Pharaoh, older and seasoned, became set in his stubbornness and would not bend even as he was challenged and destruction and ruin came upon the land and the people. Gray hair often brings wisdom, but not if we get set in our ways and no longer listen to others. The fact is, we all need to listen. How about you? Do you receive advice and feedback well? Do you discount it, perhaps because of the one saying it? The wisest people are those who will listen to counsel, weigh it, and then make appropriate changes. What about you and me? Try to listen to yourself when you're responding to people. Do you immediately discount any input given by another. May God grant us the wisdom to listen, really listen and not make excuses and not to justify, to weigh things before we respond. Now, if there are any elbows being punched here this morning, let me encourage all of us to turn those elbows inward um, where they first need to be. Would your family say that you are teachable? I gave that Homework to Band of Brothers men on Thursday. And I've been asking my um, family members, um, certain ones, if I am teachable. We haven't gotten very far, but I will say to um, Sarah Jane and Rita, I didn't sing that song this morning. I I let Roy sing it. So I just want you to know, um, Luke 2 tells us that Jesus was teachable. He grew as a young boy and He increased in wisdom. He listened and He obeyed. He followed His heavenly Father's voice all the way to the cross where He became our atonement. Last week, we celebrated His rising from the grave to be our King. Jesus was born in the obscurity of a stable in absolute, abject poverty. And He assumed His role. As Lord of Lords and King of Kings, He sits on a throne. He rules and his, He reigns. Are you and I teachable? If you're not, let me be honest. If you're not teachable, you're going to leave a wake of hurt people behind you. Do you know how to listen? Do you have a teachable spirit? If your response is one of defending yourself or perhaps hushing the other person as we tend to do, you probably are not teachable. Proverbs 15 says it this way, Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. How teachable are you? Balaam learned from a donkey. King David was challenged and learned from a friend, Nathan. Is your heart soft enough to hear from others? In our accepting counsel from others, we're called to be teachable. Let me return us now to the heart of our passage, that which enables us to be content in our labors and to be teachable in our accepting counsel from others. We come This was particularly understandable in the ancient Near East as people would travel, but they often would travel with others. And it's easily understood today just because there is a simplicity in the examples that are given here. If one falls down, we understand that a friend can pick him up. If one is cold, we understand that a friend can bring warmth. If one is being robbed, we understand that a friend can protect. Jesus practiced these very principles, didn't He? He generally traveled with His band of disciples. He sent the disciples out two by two. And we're told that where two or three are gathered together, there He is in our midst. Most people around the world travel with others. We see it today in immigrants, those coming into the U.S., Travel in groups. Why do they do so? They do so for safety. A few weeks ago, some of us were in Greece, and we met a young couple from Sweden who are working with Afghan refugee teenagers there in Athens. And this young lady, as part of her sociology degree in Greece, went to Afghanistan and actually traveled with a group of teenage boys fleeing their country as they traveled on foot to Greece. There's safety in a group traveling with each other. We've all heard of the advantages of teamwork, and I don't have to make that case real strongly. You understand that. We can accomplish a lot more if we're working together rather than trying to go it alone. Teamwork can be illustrated in the two-horse rule. Um, You know the example We're told by those who understand these things that if one horse can pull 700 pounds and the second horse can pull 800 pounds, that when they are yoked together, they can pull not just 1,500 pounds, but closer to 3,000 pounds. Now, we don't have any horses to try that with today, but we can certainly understand the advantages of working together. In early July, four years ago, Texas firefighter Shannon Stone took his six-year-old son Cooper to a Texas Ranger baseball game against the Oakland Athletics. In the second inning, a foul ball was hit down the left field line and the reigning American League MVP, Josh Hamilton, retrieved the ball. And he went to throw it up into the stands, as players will do sometime. And Shannon Stone was going to catch it for his son but he fell out of the bleachers. He plunged 20 feet. Shortly thereafter, he died. The week after Shannon Stone fell to his death, the Major League Home Run Derby was taking place in Phoenix when another fan fell from the stands. Two men fall out of bleachers within a week of each other. The first one died. Do you know what happened to the second? His friends were close enough to catch him. Keith Carmichael fell from the stands in Phoenix, reaching for a home run ball. His brother Craig later said, I was looking at the home run ball and saw my brother fall and couldn't believe it was happening. But I grabbed him and I wasn't letting go. That's a brother's love, he says. And it's also a friend's love. God calls us. To live in community. That is what the church is. We need each other. We catch each other. We go through life with each other. That is why we stress to you the importance of community groups or being in some group, some study with women or men or small group, community group, whatever, so that you can be in relationship with others. If you're not in one, I want to encourage you to find Larry Shingler um, and he will help you um, get into a community group. We're better in community than we are alone. Be involved with others. They need you and you need them. Man, I want to invite you to join other men on the men's adventure trip. It's coming one month from right now over a long weekend in May. You'll have the time of your life. But you will find some friends there that you will have forever. The first time we did this trip, there were 11 of us who joined some men from Willow Creek Church. And their theme going into this retreat was, who are you going to call at 2 a.m.? Well, I didn't understand it when I went. But after the retreat, I certainly understood what that meant. For there were men there who developed such relationships that... They have a struggle. They know somebody that they can call even at 2 a.m. Man, I want to encourage you. It's in the bulletin. Um, There's some sign-up out in the foyer. Come talk to us. We would love to have you go with us. Um, It's a great time of fun, but it's a great time of fellowship and growing together. We need to catch each other, and that's one way we can. And then the writer says in Ecclesiastes 4, A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this really means and what it stands for, um, but let me just say this. Jesus calls us to come inside His yoke, and yet we continue to try to carry burdens ourselves. We carry burdens that we were never meant to carry alone, and we wither under the stress and the weight of it. We are put In a body of believers so that we can lean upon each other and ultimately we are to join Jesus in His yoke. He invites us in. The threefold cord is like a three-legged stool but with totally uneven power in the three legs. One would be us and one might be a friend and one is the Lord of lords and King of kings No example can tell you His power. But last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection. Consider the power that is available to us. Imagine His strength. Jesus is infinitely stronger. And we are broken and weak and not meant to carry all our burdens ourselves. Two months ago when I was preaching in my church in Pensacola, the memories flooded back and um, I recalled the first song I'd ever learned there. You know it, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Let me mention Two dangers that we face. And the first is, we fail to remember that He is strong. In Colossians 1, Paul says this, I labor, and yes, we are to labor, striving according to His power. He's referring to the power of the resurrected Christ. I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Labor, Beloved friends, yes, but knowing it is in His power, mightily working in you, that is His faithfulness to us. Receive advice, yes, but knowing it is His power, mightily working in you, that is His faithfulness. And live in community with others, but knowing that it is His power, mightily working in you, that is His faithfulness. The other danger, and perhaps the greatest danger we face in our work, in our labor, in our accepting counsel from others, and in our living in community is something that would tend to prevent us from doing any of those. And that is, we tend to isolate and go it alone. We have an enemy who tells us that we need no other. Those are the very words of our passage in Ecclesiastes, aren't they? I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. When you start thinking, I can go it alone, some siren ought to go off in our minds. And we ought to go running to friends because we really need it. Years ago, a book was written called The Friendless American Male. We esteem independence, but isolation will ruin us. Nate Larkin, an author, says this, Isolation in the long run is the riskiest option of all. He says, I am not a rock. I am not capable of being my own counselor or my own best friend. For me to live a healthy and balanced life, I need to be real around other guys. And let me say this to everyone here, but especially to men, since I know men better because I am one, refuse to isolate. Refuse to isolate in the darkness of your own cave. There is power and there's strength in community together. The truth from God's Word is that we were created to live in community together. Larkin says, friends and community will remind you of the mercy and grace of God in Christ, allow you to admit brokenness and pain. You will be reminded that you are not an orphan. You are an adopted child of the King who will never disown you. There's nothing more important than relationship. Your life will be bombarded with temptations that would take you away from relationship. Choose relationship. The truth is that people need you, and you need people. Our culture, our world, Orlando, life has never been busier. Busyness. If we're too busy for community, we're simply too busy. I love what Scotty Smith says. A sign you're growing in grace is you linger longer at meals and in conversations and you hide and isolate less. There's another song um, that I thought about singing for my family, um, but I decided not to, Um, but I am going to read it to you. It's a song that most of you know. It comes from Toy Story 3. It goes like this. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed, just remember what your old pal said. Boy, you've got a friend in me. You've got troubles. Well, I've got them too. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together and we see it through. You've got a friend in me. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am. Bigger and stronger too, maybe. Maybe. But none of them will ever love you the way I do. It's me and you. And as the years go by, boys, our friendship will never die. You're going to see. It's our destiny. You've got a friend in me. Wouldn't you love to have a friend like that? If you know Jesus, you have that friend. In fact, He tells us that we are no longer called slaves, but rather friends. Friends. He sets us in community with each other. And He gives us His Spirit, not some it. He gives us the person of the Holy Spirit, a member of the Trinity, as our friend, as the one who walks alongside of us through every joy and through every trial. God is our friend. Father, Abba, Daddy, we are in relationship. Father to child, Son, Jesus, Savior and friend to us. Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who walks alongside of us. Rest in it. Joy in it. Live in it. The Lord is my shepherd. He is all that I want. In our living in community, we are called to be a partner with others. In closing, in our work and in our labor, we are called to be content. In our accepting counsel from others, we are called to be teachable. And in our living in community, we are called to be a partner. In interdependence upon each other in the body of Christ, and in total dependence Upon the Lord Jesus. One is truly the loneliest number. Don't live in it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come together today asking that you would forgive us for trying so often, too often, to live our life as if we do not need others whom you have given to us and living as if we do not need You, as You make Yourself readily available to us. Father, we ask that You would give us grace to hear and hearts that are soft enough to change and to grow and mature. Father, give us wisdom to be content and teachable and to live in community with each other. Father, I pray that as a result of our being together today, that each one of us would be more like the Lord Jesus. For we pray in His name. Amen.